John chapter 17, verse 20 to 26. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be as that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be, so that they be, may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, through the world does not though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for Marco and we thank you for bringing um, him and Nicolette um, and Ella and Vigo and Sophia to us. And we thank you for the way that you bless us through his ministry. And we just pray now that you would take him now and that you would use him to speak your word into each one of our lives. And we pray that you would give us open hearts, that we would be able to hear your word and respond to it. In your name, amen. It's great to have been going through the series. We come to the, to the end of, of Jesus' time with his disciples. And uh, after this passage, he, uh, events move quite quickly to the cross. Um, and the resurrection and what comes beyond. So this is, this is really the end of a section. Um, and, uh, let me pray before we, before we get into it briefly. Father, we bow before your holy word. Would you open the eyes of our hearts to see you, to see your glory, to behold the glory of your son in your word, that we would be changed, that we would come to love and know you more. In Christ's name, amen. Now, uh, uh, John Knox. John Knox was um, was the main leader of the Protestant Reformation in Scotland in the 16th century. Now, I, I love history, but I've discovered from my children that not everybody shares a love of history. Um, so I'll say only a few brief things about Knox. First, he had a seriously impressive beard. Um, second... He changed the world and was probably one of maybe a hundred people throughout history of whom that could really be said with any meaning, that they changed the world. I won't explain all the ways in which he did that, but even if you're not all that enthusiastic about history, you might have heard one or two things about Knox, and probably both of them have to do with his prayers, if you've heard anything at all, that is. The first, apparently Mary, Queen of Scots, once said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. That's quite a thing to say. The other thing you may have heard was a prayer of Knox himself. He apparently prayed once, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. Not uh, not an arrogant demand, but the passionate plea of a man desperate for the pure preaching of the gospel and the salvation of his country. Knox's prayers were feared by his enemies and answered by his God. Scotland was changed for centuries to come by the ministry of the gospel through him. In fact, the world was changed in ways that are 
marvelous and, and intricate to trace, but we are the beneficiaries of Knox's ministry in many ways. He was a man of prayer. Lastly, John Knox loved this prayer that was just read to us. Well, b- between last week that Jonathan preached and this portion of it, he loved this prayer. Apparently, in his final days on his deathbed, it was his request that his family and friends read John chapter 17 to him over and over again. So let's look more carefully at this section of it and see what so moved John Knox. Well, the first thing to notice is so obvious that, in fact, we may not even notice it, which is that Jesus prayed for you. He prayed for us. Verse 20 My prayer is not only for these 11 disciples, but for all those who will believe in me through their message. Christian, that's you. Let that sink in. 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed for you. Just minutes after this prayer, Jesus would pray again in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, the The physician Luke tells us that during that prayer, Jesus sweat blood. It's, um, it's an incredibly rare phenomenon, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this correctly, called hematidrosis. Doctors can correct me, hematidrosis. Apparently it, it occurs when a person feels intense, extreme fear or stress that uh, they actually sweat blood. You see, at Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, prayed as one about to become the sin-bearer as one about to face the wrath of God for your sin and mine. And as sin-bearer, he rightly feared the holy anger of the holy judge. But now, in his final moments before Gethsemane, he approaches God the Father as the beloved Son. And he prayed for you. For you. Never mind what he prayed, the content of it, which we'll come to in a moment but that the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who at that very moment was upholding the entire created universe by his will, knowing what lay just moments ahead, paused to pray for you and for me. I could go around the room and say, Keith, he prayed for you, Christopher for you, Mark, Vigor, Helen and Joel, he prayed for you. What love is this? Which becomes even clearer when we see what it is that he prayed for us. I'm going to start in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, some of you may remember um, when I was visiting here, my wife, uh, Nicolette, and I were visiting you here in June last year. Uh, I was here for a week. Nicolette just came for um, a weekend, really, uh, which ended up being about four days with all the travel time. How tearful she was at being away from the children, even just for give or take four days. It's one of the most powerful of all human emotions, isn't it? The desire to be with those you love. Jesus loves you, Christian, and he wants you to be with him. Isn't that amazing? He wants you, you, with him. 
There are a few things, uh, four, I think, that I want to say about this verse. First, some here have lost loved, one, loved ones. I have. My, uh, my grandfather was, uh, on my mother's side, that is, was a, was a quiet Yorkshireman who, who served in the, the British Merchant Navy, was posted to South Africa after the Second World War. When Grandpa was in hospital, we knew uh, there came a point where we knew he wouldn't be coming out again and that his days were, were few. My family knew that I was a Christian. Um, and my mom asked me to go and, uh, and talk to Grandpa. So I did. I went to his bed in the hospital, said to him, Grandpa, do you know what will happen to you? And he said, In my father's house are many rooms. Jesus has prepared a place for me. Those are the last words he spoke to me. Friends, if you grieve the loss of a fellow Christian, and you should, you should grieve. Let it comfort you when you are called upon to give up those you love. You give them up to Jesus, who wants them. Why? Why does Jesus want you to be with him? He says it's so that you will see his glory. But what does that mean? And doesn't it sound a bit, a lot egocentric, self-aggrandizing? Well, look with me at, uh, again at, at verse 1 of chapter 17, if you would, just for a moment. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Father, glorify your Son. Clothe me in splendor, the splendor I had as God, as creator of the universe, that your Son may glorify you, that in the eyes of all who perceive who you are and what you have done, in saving sinners through my life and death and resurrection, you will be exalted, feared, loved, and worshipped. So when Jesus prays in verse 24, Father, I desire that they whom you have given me may be with me to see my glory, he is actually praying that his Father would be glorified in your eyes. Which is the same as praying for you to be as happy, as overflowing, as bursting with joy as it is ever possible you could be. When you and I one day stand before the throne and see Jesus as he truly is, the exalted King of heaven, the Lamb of God who is the Lion of Judah, when we see him unveiled, I, I don't know what we will do. It is a spiritual reality that we become like what we worship. The devotion of worship gives the object of worship mastery over the worshiper. Let me say that again. The devotion of worship gives the object of our worship mastery over the worshiper. Or, said slightly differently, we are transformed by what we love. It's maybe an easier way to get around it. We are transformed by what we love. What exercises the greatest power over your life, what makes you who you are, is what you most love. 
And so, on the great coming day, when we see him, Jesus, a man, a human being with flesh and bone just as us, but unveiled, uncloaked, fully man and fully God, with his manness no longer masking his godness, we will so adore him in his infinitely perfect beauty that we instantly will be changed to be just like him. We who have loved imperfectly will love perfectly. Affections that have been fickle will be solid as a rock. Devotion that has been mixed will in that moment become forever steadfast. Happiness that has run like a a seasonal stream will become the ocean without bottom or shore. In a moment when we see him. And the Father will surely answer this prayer. That he be glorified, the gracious, saving God. That he be glorified in your eyes and mine through the glory of his obedient, loving son. The father will answer his son's prayer. And this prayer that we see his glory is your and my salvation. Third point, and another reason why Jesus wants you to see his glory You've never seen him in glory. You've only ever seen him demeaned in this world. Every time your classmates at school laugh at Christianity, every time your tutors or professors at university ridicule your faith, they demean Jesus. Why is it the instinct of every man to absorb with little problem the insults or even the threats that come our own way, but to rise in anger as soon as an insult or threat comes to your wife or children? Why is it the instinct of every mother to be almost passive and accepting of personal insults sometimes, but speak ill of her children? And the lamb instantly becomes a lioness. And children, you know this too. If somebody in your class calls you ugly... You might be upset. You might just laugh it off. But if they call your mother ugly, they've had it. I remember uh, when I was seven, a boy who lived in our neighborhood. I won't say his name in case he ever hears this recording. (laughs) He came over to play one afternoon after school, and he broke my cricket bat. And uh, a car racing track thing uh, that we were playing with once upon a time these were actual things not on screens we had these little cars that zapped around and that was all fine he broke the thing and I was annoyed but then he grabbed my little sister It's about 18 months younger than me so she was probably 5 at the time he grabbed her roughly and he kissed her and he jumped over the wall and ran away well breaking my car track I could live with breaking my cricket bat I could live with But doing that to my sister, I jumped the wall, chased him down, broke down their front door and beat him up. (laughs) My parents had to pay for a new front door. (laughs) Point is, friends, we all get this, don't we? We're content to absorb personal insults sometimes, even personal threats to an extent. But don't dare insult or threaten those we love. Christian, in this world, in this life, we will hear Jesus demeaned, 
ridiculed, mocked, despised and dismissed. But hold fast, all will soon be repaid. We will see him in his glory. The last thing I want to say about verse 24, he said this for your joy. In verse 13 of chapter 17, Jesus says, These things I speak in the world that they, that is you and I, that we may have joy fulfilled in us. Jesus is saying these things. He, he prayed this prayer out loud for your joy, not just on that day. The knowledge that we will see him in his glory, yes, that is something to hold on to and to look forward to and should shape our lives, but it gives us joy not just then, now. Now. And I suspect, though it is just my own suspicion, I've got no evidence to back this up, I suspect that this verse Verse 24 of chapter 17. This was what moved John Knox so, and why he wanted this chapter read to him over and over as he approached his death. But how could Jesus pray such a prayer? How could he ask that we be with him in heaven to see his glory? No sin, no sinner can approach God. And in verse 25... Jesus calls his father, O righteous father. God must be and is perfectly righteous. And only those who are themselves perfect can enter or dwell in his presence. Verse 25, O righteous father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. These 11 and all those, that that is us, who have come to believe through the message of the apostles, they know who I am and that you have sent me on this mess, on this mission. I have made known your very being to them, who you are and what you do, and I continue to make it known so that your love for me might be in them exactly as I am in them. It is those whose eyes have been opened to see Jesus for who he is, those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, those ever being made more and more into the likeness of Christ. Christian, that's you and me. It is we who will see his glory because of what he has done for us. Therefore, summarize what comes next and then talk about it a bit. Therefore, we are one and we are perfecting our oneness that the world may know. We are one, friends. We who are loved by Jesus, we to whom he has made the Father known, we who will follow our Christian loved ones to his side one day, we who will behold with our own eyes the unveiled glory of the Lord Jesus, we who will burst with praise to the Father for his grace in our salvation. We Christians, we saved, we in whom the Holy Spirit dwells now, we are one. But listen to verse 23. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. We are working out our oneness 
perfecting our unity. Just, just, that means just that this needs to be worked out in real life. I could say, for example, we need to put flesh on that. We have a real spiritual unity in Christ, but that must become an embodied unity, a unity with skin and bones. It must be practical as well as spiritual. And that's what we've been working towards these past couple of months. As we've refined our members' handbook, as we've got uh, feedback from all of you on uh, your thoughts on it, parts of it that resonate well, some that needed, needed some improvement, that's exactly what we're doing. We're working out what it means with skin and bone to be one. Not just in Christ, but in Kenilworth. What does it mean to be one? And again, on that point, before I move on, I do want to say thank you. We will present that again on, on Wednesday night. The feedback really has been helpful. It, it was our hope that the feedback would lead us to a better version of the document, and I'm convinced it has. So thank you. Now, we must say, though, that much as I am convinced, and, and, and I hope we all are, I certainly know for the core team, we are convinced, persuaded that the handbook represents sound biblical reasoning and theological application, we get it that some folks are just going to see things differently, want to do certain things in church life differently. And that's okay. But we do need to work out what it means for us as KCC, as Kenworth Community Church, to put flesh and bones on the oneness we have in Christ. And that means agreeing to some things in principle, and being specific about some things. And that's what this document is about. But it cannot end there. Unity, even once made practical, isn't for its own sake. You'll see in verse 23 that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. That they may become perfectly one. Jesus prayed that we would work out our unity in practice so that the world would know. He prayed that we'd be mature in this oneness and give to the world around us evidence of who he is and what he came to do. That the world would see in our practical, visible unity that we are secure in the love of the Father. That God's love is not a theory to us. It's not merely a doctrine. It's a reality that shapes all of our lives. Now, this will have a thousand applications, but instead I'm just going to ask one or two questions. If our unity in Christ is to become both practical and visible, that means, does it not, that it must stand out in contrast to what is around it. Otherwise, it's not really visible. If it just blends in, you can't see it. For something to be visible, it needs to stand out against the background. So here's the question for you. In what ways is it going to be most difficult for you to stand out as different? At school, in what ways is it difficult to be different? Might unity with the body of Christ, might your relationship with God at school mean a commitment to attending, if there is such a thing at your school, something like a, a once-a-week lunchtime Christian gathering? Maybe you'll be teased for that. Maybe you'll be mocked for that. 
But it might be that your commitment to standing out in that way sows a seed in someone's heart that they see she really believes all this Christian stuff. What does visible unity with the mission of the church in a way that stands out against the background of affluent middle-class England mean for our personal budgets and spending? What might it mean for your and my reputation to submit to, not just to submit to, to embrace and to love doctrines that run against the grain of culture? Visible unity, visible association with Christ and his church means we are going to stand out on many, maybe most, moral and ethical issues of our time. And increasingly so. Our unity is real, friends. It is. We are one. Now let us perfect that unity. Let us work it out in visible ways, together in the mission of the church, of this church, here in Kenilworth. What is the mission of the church? How is it presented in this passage? That through our witness, just as Jesus assumed through the witness of these original eleven, we would eventually hear the message. So, built into the passage is the assumption that somebody who hasn't heard the message now will hear it tomorrow. That somebody who isn't in this room right now will be here next Sunday. That through our witness... Others would come to know who Jesus is and what the Father sent him to do. That they will come to love the Father and the Son just as we do. That theirs too will be the promise of one day seeing his glory. That ours will be the joy of standing side by side with them when they do. Just as we will one day say thank you to somebody probably many people that we aren't even aware of that were in the the chain that eventually got the message to me and to you. There will be those who you don't even know who will come to you one day and say, thank you. Do you remember that thing you said on the playground at school one day? I'm here in part because you said that. Finally, friends, I'm going to read this passage through for us once more. I'm just going to change the point of view, and then I will close in prayer. So for a moment, just imagine me as Jesus. I did not ask only for those first 11, but for all of you who have come and who still will come to believe in me through their message. I want all of you to be of one heart and mind, one purpose, just as the Father and I are one, so that the world may believe that the Father sent me. The glory that the Father gave me, I have given to you, so that you may be one, even as the Father and I are one. Me and you, and you in me, that you may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that the Father sent me 
and loves you just as he loves me. I want you, you who the Father has given to me, to be with me where I am, to see my glory that the Father gave me because he has loved me since before the foundation of the world. The world does not know my righteous Father, but I know him, and you know that he sent me. I have shown him to you. I've shown you his very being. And I will continue to show him to you so that the love with which he loves me will be in you. And I will be in you. Jesus' prayer was, Father, I want all these whom you have given me to see my glory. And so he went to die. John Knox's prayer was, give me Scotland or I die. It is my prayer, and I know it is yours too. Lord, give us Kenilworth before we die. On Wednesday night, we will flesh this out a bit more. Come and join us then. I'm going to close in prayer and then over to Keith. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for these 11 who faithfully passed on the message by the power of your spirit. And we thank you that that same spirit, that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. There was nothing different about the power they had available to them. Would you make us faithful and effective in mission too? May it be that this message that you have now entrusted to us, that you have put in our hearts, on our lips would go to this town and beyond. Father, we pray the prayer that has been prayed through the ages, that Jesus prayed, that John Knox prayed, that many others who have gone before us prayed. Father, bring these around us to see Jesus. Amen.